0: Welcome back to Radical Ones. I'm your host, Xander Schultz. I'm here with my producer, Phineas, who, who has become our Bruce Buffer of sorts, introducing our guests. Phineas, who do we have today? Today, we have a very special guest, Philip Atiba Goff, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity and a professor of African American Studies and Psychology at Yale University. He is well-known nationally as a leader in the science of racial bias. He's just a brilliant guy and thinks about these issues in a really unique and singular way. Yeah, I mean, this was a no-brainer episode to do. There's a lot of people in our country asking right now what the hell is going on with policing you know i think 20% of us marched in some sort of you know awareness campaign if you want to call it that the blm marches largely driven by these horrid videos we watched and and heard about around police brutality and phil is one of the leaders in the space in trying to fix this issue both from the inside and from the outside working with the community working with police departments i don't know if anyone in the country When the world has a better 360 view of what's going on and what's driving it. He's been studying it for decades. And so he's not coming at this from a pure like activist angle, which is I think, you know, who we hear from a lot on this podcast and often who you hear from when it comes to police brutality, right? He's he's a real scientist. It's rare where someone's both a visionary for a radically different future and really good pragmatically, getting the needle to move in the short term as well. And he's proven that he's, he can do that time and time again with different police departments across the country. You know, I don't know if an episode like this needs much of an introduction because all of us are just so fucking curious about what the hell's going on. So the first question I ask on every podcast is,
1: how would you describe
0: the problem you're solving?
1: That's, I love that question. Um, so I'm teaching a class right now called, Is That Racist? And I encourage all the students to, to think about racism lots of different ways. But one of them is racism is solving a problem. And the def- their definition of racism is also separately solving a problem. And when you understand what problem you're solving in how you're defining racism, you'll you'll learn things about yourself and also about how you want to go about literally combating and solving the problem of racism. So when you think about when I think about the problem I'm trying to solve, when I started, the problem was took me a long time, but I now have a way to articulate it, which is that most people define racism in terms of contaminated hearts and minds. They think about it as something Mm -hmm. inside of a person, but there's not an easy way with that definition to solve the problem of rising inequality in the context of declining prejudice. Yet that's the situation we find ourselves in. So what language would we use to make sense of that? And my job was to supply, to, to derive and then supply the language that could make sense of that. Now, I think that some of that work has been done for sure, not entirely by me, by any stretch. Right. Some of that work has been done. I mean, the whole world got
0: a education on the difference between, you know, that, that first definition of racism that you gave and systemic racism. If, mm-hmm. if they hadn't had it already, certainly most people got some of it this last summer.
1: Yeah, there's going to be a lot more uh, in the next couple of years because uh, congressional testimony, apparently, we have we to t- deal with that every single time any Democrat speaks. Mm. Um, uh, so it's not it's not done by any stretch but you're quite right that intro class is now open available it's on khan academy or something right. um, so <laughs> the next sort of batch of work for me i think is to both do and recognize the importance of doing the how in all of these big ideas about what should come next in our in our long journey towards black liberation Mm. Um, it's it's the how part, because there's lots of folks working hard on the what popularizing the what bringing people to, to the discussion about what should our destination be. I find that the lane is a lot emptier in terms of the doing of the how and that there's a different genius between where should we be going and how do we get there? And I want people to recognize that that genius is important and it's okay if that's where your genius lies. So just stay there, do that. Because right. not everybody who figures out where, she, where we're going can navigate us to get to that destination.
0: Right, and so as you answered that, how, you zeroed in on, I don't know if policing's too specific or there's like you know, a broader range, but you zeroed in on policing as one of the pillars, one of the important pillars to attack.
1: Yeah, and so I'm going to try not to be too professorial on this. I swear I'm going to keep my answers not 17 hours long. But um, 1930, Charles Hamilton Houston hires this guy, Nathan Margold, to come up with a plan for how they're going to attack segregation. And he says, you got to do it through the through the schools and you'll go up to the Supreme Court, Hmm. right? Because the idea that if you get the schools, segregation will fall and if segregation falls, everything gets better. Now, that plan, I think, ultimately was a bust. It didn't do all the things that it was trying to do, even wh- while we're very happy that Brown versus Board of Education was decided the way that it was decided. Right. So I feel like one of my projects, not the problem I'm trying to solve, but one of my projects is, well, what's the Margold plan for right now? Mm. And uh, I don't think it's in education. I do think it's in public safety and or housing. And I'm in the public safety side because there were more folks doing housing when I got started.
0: Right. Let's talk a little bit about how you got started. Like, I mean, we're all broadly aware of policing, but when did you get like become aware of policing in the way that you're talking about now? And then what was, what was the journey between you saying like I'm being introduced to this issue. This is a problem. And this is my problem. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna own this thing and, and work on that. How?
1: Yeah. So, so I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, I, I, I was born in Philadelphia. I grew up just outside in the burbs. And when I was seven years old, I watched as they dropped a bomb on the Move. block of yep, Osage Avenue, 6221. And then I watched as they were saying over the news, I don't understand why it's still burning. Is it possible they gave the order to let it burn? Mm. There are children inside there, children who were my age. Yeah. I didn't understand that as a policing issue. I just, I couldn't understand what had happened. And my parents didn't have good words for it. So it just, that just stuck with me. Right. And I didn't make the connection that, that was law enforcement at the time, but it's, it's seared into my brain. Like I remember. I remember what it smelled like in the kitchen um, while we were watching that. And then fast forward to high school. I have a white girl in my car. I'm taking her home from like theater or something. And I, I we stop to get gas. I go inside. There's like a one of those little foil flowers that has chocolate on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got I got one of those because I was like, this is my early trying to have game. Right, days. right. right. Um, foil so chocolate. I that...
0: Everyone knows that move. <laughs>
1: So I, so I was like, oh, surprise chocolate, right? Um, so I brought that back out to the car and there's a cop sitting there talking to her about the passenger window. And he's got his hand on his hip. I'm like, who is this talking to this, this girl I'm trying to, to holler at? And he unclips the gun when he sees me coming and sees me coming to enter the car. And he says, are you all right? To the girl in the car. And she goes, yeah. She go, he goes, no, no, really, he can't do anything to you. Are you okay? And none of it all, like computed. I just thought he like, girl I was with was fine. I thought he was trying to holler. Clearly underage for him, but still. Right. It wasn't until I was a junior in college. I was home uh, interviewing for some fellowship, caught a flat. My dad had taken the spare out, so I had to call him to come pick me up with a, with a, a spare tire. And it was real late at night. I walked down to the, the post office in downtown Philly and I fell asleep by accident because it had been a long ass day. And I got woken up by somebody who's kicking me in the ribs. I was sitting down on the floor. He said, you know, you all y- you people can't sleep in here. And I'm dressed in a suit. Right. And with a tie i'm looking i'm looking as good as i know how to look i was like oh no 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 you don't understand i'm waiting for my dad and he he, he takes his baton and cracks me in the ribs
0: whoa
1: he said i'm not i'm not fucking with you i said y'all people can't sleep down here so he literally didn't just crack me in he cracked the ribs yeah and i was like oh this is what policing is huh so i knew it was mine in that way Like, not just the regular fear of, oh, my God, they're behind me. And am I speeding? But like, oh, they're targeting me. And I started to put the the dots together. but it never became my thing professionally until I had met with Tracy Kazee, who was the uh, commander in the Denver Police Department. She had challenged my manhood, said, you got to do science out in the Denver Police Department. I got to understand that it was it was a deep thing. It -hmm. was everywhere. It was all the time and we were never seeing it. But it was really 2008. There was this black guy running for president which is what bullshit is that he was definitely never going to win and i got right. asked by a magazine to write a a, a memo for him, for the candidate like obama like, like that's a name that could get elected and he said well what what should he do don't forget the wins?
0: barack hussein
1: part add, yeah, in, add, yeah. in, add in like the, the muslim, the muslim <laughs> fear on sprinkle that into yeah um and so i was like so what he, what should he do and i had been doing this thing in policing for a little bit but it was one of the things i was doing as sort of a racial justice researcher so I wrote the memo saying you should focus on policing because every 30 years we do something really big with policing. Um, like it's gonna be 30 years since the LA Uprising post Rodney King verdict. Right. So like it's gonna come due for you. And as I was doing writing the memo, I was at the Russell Sage Foundation. I had a team of researchers trying to help me find this one stat, just like color, just flavor at the end, just sprinkle it on top. And the stat was police brutality. I was looking for racial disparities in police brutality. My mother's a reference librarian. I called her up. I was like, hey, mom, could you find this thing? She's like, I'll be up and do it in the morning, baby. She called me at six. She's like, I'm having a hard time, but I'm sure we'll find it. And then 13 and a half hours after I started looking, I got up like a zombie, packed up my shit, and went back to the apartment where they were putting us up because I realized the reason none of us could find it is because nobody fucking tracked it. Right. And I was like, oh, so to do anything useful, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my fucking life.
0: So 2008, you're like, shit, no one's tracking this stuff. And so I'm going to be that guy to track it. <laughs> I'm going to figure out, you know, how often this is happening, why it's happening, et cetera. Is that, is that how it went? No, see, that would be
1: someone who, who had some sense. And I didn't have that kind of sense. <laughs> I was just like, oh, shit, they don't know nothing. I guess I'm going I'm, to I'm try and learn something. I was just, right. I was trying to get my hands on whatever you're data just in there. they would give me. And so I was doing experiments. I was bringing officers into simulators and trying to figure out what was going on there. It didn't dawn on me that I was junior. I was a junior professor. I was moving over to UCLA um, and it didn't dawn on me that I could do something big. It was 2012. It was right after Trayvon Martin was killed. Mm. We had, we held a convening at DOJ, which was a big deal for us. Who's we? It's the set, what is now the Center for Policing Equity okay. held a convening. It was the, back then it was the Consortium for Police Leadership and Equity. Mm. I was you get better at naming. Thing.
0: You get better yeah, exactly. at naming later
1: in life. <laughs> 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 so we, we were having a we were having a convening at DOJ and these two police chiefs got into it and like we had to physically separate them. Um, and the one of them was like, he, he comes out he's like, you need to stop calling me a racist. The other one says, I'll stop calling you a racist when the term applies. And after they settled down a bit, the one who was calling the other one the racist says, everybody in this room was a police chief is a fucking coward because if we wanted to know how good a job we were doing we would give the data to a bunch of nerds i get we don't give it to the government because they don't know how to analyze shit but we would give it to a bunch of nerds and we got a bunch of nerds here so why don't we just do it right and i i literally i like, my mind went numb it was like 5 minutes later like it was all all the adults and charlie brown for like 5 minutes that's incredible and i was like wait are you asking for like a national database of like police brutality. And every chief in the room was like, yo, I mean, if it's if it's nerds, we would do that. And so that was the the origin story.
0: So that organization was born. Now you have all these police chiefs saying, you know what, I I do want your help. I do want you to go get this data. So what in between now and then and then there's there's more more to highlight like what did you learn
1: Yeah, so the first thing is when I got in 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 2005, when I first uh, started doing the work with with Tracy in Denver, I thought all the stuff that I had learned in graduate school was probably bullshit. Because I learned that, you know, situations are more important than character and attitudes don't really predict things. But I got there and I was like, I'm meeting some bigoted, racist ass officers. I'm guessing the bigots are going to bigot. And that's really the whole story here. So I set up the experiments with no trust that any of the science I had been doing was useful at all. So you bought
0: into like the bad apples thing. Like, or you, you had, you had a thesis on the bad apples thing when you first got started that you're
1: like, yeah, all right. It was, it wasn't bad apples. No, it was, it was just that prejudice is the problem. Yeah. Got it. Right. Like that, character really is the thing. And I didn't think that it was a small number. Cause I met a lot of people right you're like maybe a lot <laughs> of racist
0: dudes are attracted to this job. Yeah. Right. But, and, yeah.
1: And so I was like, so Denver is going to be somewhere in the middle. There were some places that are gonna be better. Some places are worse. Um, that was, my, that was my thinking. And then I put them through the the studies and then I watched them on the street and the bigots weren't the biggest problem. They just weren't. Um, it was situations were really, really powerful. And so I was reconvicted that the science was useful out in the world. Mm. And this is the time when implicit bias is really taking off. And we were a big part of, of making that happen because no one was paying attention. Everybody was saying, this is not that big of a problem. Racism is a thing of the past. We had Toni Morrison calling Bill Clinton the first black president. So like now that we got a real black president, how much better are we now? Nobody was talking about this. right? Um, and so implicit bias was a great way to say, actually the structures of our society are so racist, it gets into your brain. Mm. So when we were doing all of that, that felt like good and righteous work. And then very quickly as it started to get picked up, we were like, no, wait, y'all are trying to say that there's no such thing as structural racism. Wait, y'all are saying that there's no explicit racism. We didn't we never said that. Stop. Please stop taking it. And and the same way that anything that black people do that becomes popular, you then have to distance yourself from because white people get it and fuck it up.
0: Mm-hmm. It's the same
1: thing with the science, right? Um and so when we got to Ferguson, they were saying, "Oh, well, everybody needs implicit bias training." I was like, "No. Stop. It was never supposed to be a training. Right. It was a message that said the structures are so jacked that it gets into our brains. Stop trying to say that that's, the, that's the, the silver bullet, like racism is only one thing.
0: Just to take a step back for a second. So what's structural problem versus like implicit bias? How would you, wh- like where where do folks get that wrong? It sounds like you know a lot of folks get that wrong.
1: Yeah, so the, the problem, if your structure of the definition of the problem, so you think racism is inside people. Right. And I say implicit bias. You're like, oh, okay, that's in your brain, but you don't know it, cool. I don't have to change anything about the structure of my definition.
0: Got it. And your your position was the structure influences implicit bias that could be in any of our brains because of how it's structured. If you hang out in this system for long enough, you'll start thinking a certain way.
1: Exactly. If you get enough exposures to black folks are criminal, black folks are criminal, you learn that association, it becomes automatic. Right. That's about how the world is. That's not something defective in your brain. Right. So why would you try and interrupt that inside of your damn brain? Like that don't make right. no kind of damn sense. Like fix the world. If you wanna, if you wanna end implicit bias, you make the world an equitable place. That's how you fix it. Mm. And the whole point of the whole implicit bias movement within psychology was the shit is pervasive and y'all are ignoring it. Right. Pay attention, focus up. And the problem is that that became focus up inside the head and only there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, all right, so so I guess that that's not. But I do this all the time again in class and when I'm giving talk. When John Lewis and when Rosa Parks were doing voting rights and public conveyance um, uh, integration, respectively, they dressed up in suits and ties, they behaved respectively. Because the goal was, it's your savagery that makes you behave this way, not ours. Right, right. That became, pull up your pants and the world will treat you better. Right. You don't wanna blame John Lewis and Rosa Parks for that. You don't wanna be like, oh, they were half-steppers, they were fake ass revolutionaries. Like, that's some bullshit, you would never say that. But they used a tactic to deal with one manifestation of racism. Right. And implicit bias research is a tactic to deal with one manifestation of racism.
0: But that's not how you all <laughs> deal with it. So let, let, let's get back to the Center for Policing Equity. You've been on a really interesting journey the last few years, especially. Can you talk about that and what the work looks like today?
1: Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we realized, so we, what we used to be doing is communities and law enforcement would call us up. we say, yes, we're down, let's help. And every new place was bespoke, right? Um, like Farnsworth Bentley's uh, wardrobe, we just tailor made it for every individual. right? And that was exhausting. We couldn't scale that. like So there was this huge demand and we just couldn't be responsive. So we started to realize, you know what is the basics of every place? Just measure the portion of the, the problem that police are responsible for. Because there's no community in the, the world where police are their only problem. Where they're like, oh, everybody's got great jobs and great access to health care. It's just these damn police. Like, it's never been like that. These are communities of concentrated disadvantage and, and lots of it. Um, so we we basically tried to create a performance management system, but not for crime, for justice. We started measuring justice and giving that back to communities. So what that meant was, sure, you could say the the cops are all racist. Fine, but that doesn't tell you where you should start intervening mm-hmm. if you're gonna have law enforcement at all. So we created a set of metrics that would allow you to say the police are most responsible for disparities. On the east side of District Three, mm. and so the community and law enforcement would be like, "Well, what the fuck are we doing on the east side of District Three? Oh, that's where we have that gang task force. I guess that could be. Maybe we should not do gang enforcement over. Or it's it's the most with the homeless population. Oh, so maybe we should just fund resources for that. So it's it's literally just tracking the things that the community wants law enforcement to track and allowing that to move them in the right direction. Yeah. So November 2019 or, or October 2019, we put out basically a, a set of recommendations. There were reforms. There were changes to the way the things were. But we added a principle that we had not articulated. It had been part of our philosophy the whole way through. But we'd never really articulated before, which is that in addition to reducing harm and reducing dis- disparities and, 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 and you know, racially disparate outcomes, we said parsimony was really important we kept hearing from law enforcement that they, they got asked to do too much they got asked to do the mental health and the substance abuse and the child welfare and the homelessness, yeah, yeah and they wanted to get out of that
0: that was one of the most striking things to me when you took me to san francisco with their police mm-hmm. department i did the ride along and those guys kept saying over and over again like this isn't police work like this isn't police work. It would, it would be a... and i i to a certain extent i understood they felt like overmatched for the situation with like a mental health breakdown or like someone was just homeless you're like dude this like i don't there's no I, I think it's easy to paint all these guys as like really malicious people at times, but but like, I think they were like, I just don't have a tool in the toolbox for this. Like I can take this dude to county, but he's gonna come back
1: tomorrow. Um, Like it's, he's not, he's not breaking any rule. He just needs help. So they can talk to you. They can lock you up. They can cause you physical harm and then lock you up. Right. But they don't have any of the other tools. And, and who on earth thought that the, the solve for homelessness was a badge and a gun? Who thought punishing you for whatever happened in your life so that you didn't have a home or a roof over your head was a good idea. But what that also means is that we need to shift the resources to the things that prevent contact with law enforcement in the first place.
0: Right. I'd love to know both like, where are we today? Like, it feels like we're at this like crisis point, but like, well, like what is actually like the data behind that? What, what, what is happening? And then how do we get here?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you, we start with the. Uh, Invasion and colonization of the United States, um, in terms of how I manage it, because I, I do some international work, but I'm focused in the United States. Um, uh, I think the first point after that that's incredibly important, um, after we get to the 1619, 16, um, is 1850, which is the Fugitive Slave Act, which creates a federal law um, uh, that allows for the tracking and capture of people who were accused of having been in bondage um, and chattel slavery in slave states the idea that there would need to be a federal process for managing human, human property, mm-hmm. that set up a process because shortly thereafter was when we started collecting data on crime. So those things are not disconnected. Right. We have reconstruction, so 1865, we think about reconstruction starting in 1867. Um, so then we get through re- Reconstruction. Black folks are getting money. They're getting elected. And that's scary. So in, in 1877, that ends, you have Jim and Jane Crow. And now I need someone to enforce the social and cultural division. And that is another inflection point where cities and towns that didn't need law enforcement before, they're like, they're these Black people and they're looking me in the eye. We need to hire someone to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so that's happening at the same time that there is a push for "quote unquote" profession- a first push for professionalization, because there's massive amounts of corruption, mm. right? Like police are in on um, the prohibition stuff and I, and the alcohol stuff, like like they're in on it. So this period of Jim and Jane Crow and prohibition, like all together, is happening, right? So you have expansion because it's a it's a cash center for local government, and you also have expansion because there are these social cultural laws that need to be put into place. All right. Then you move into the period of open rebellion, which I'll call the second reconstruction, which we understand as the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And police are on camera doing the worst of what the society sees, because it was law enforcement's job to enforce racist laws. That's in fact why we expanded police departments during Jim and Jane Crow. And so the visuals of police there starts getting an anti law enforcement. It becomes one of the big stereotypes of law enforcement as authoritarian and racist, right? That's massively huge. The next place that I would put it is 1992 and the, the, the aftermath of the uprisings in the wake of the Rodney King or the trial around the beating of Rodney King. Right. And so what happens after that is the 94 Crime Act, which doesn't just set up a whole bunch of things we hate. It also sets up you know, um, an office of violence prevention. So, so uh, violence against women gets put forward and the cops office, the idea of community uh, policing, which I know lots of folks would say is a terrible idea. But there was this idea that law enforcement is out of control so consent decrees and investigations through civil rights that gets uh, put in through the 94 crime act so it's a different orientation that law enforcement it does good but also we have to rein it in that's the uh, that's the understanding at the time again i'm not endorsing any of this stuff you asked me to to tell a narrative yeah yeah no this is great so that that response to the la um uprising is the critical moment and i also it's i think it's important to get literally the uprising begins the last night that the cosby show airs the last episode of the cosby show is the same night and cosby gets does a direct to camera and says i know folks are upset what you should do is you should stay in and watch the cosby show Mm. which is literally stay in and watch this version of blackness that is palatable for everyone right and obviously la did not stay in that night and i think that transition from oh blackness the goal is this something like assimilation something like a white normal but with black flavor We'd done that before in the civil rights movement when King was first seen as a radical and then seen as milk toast. It was the same kind of transition where this thing where we're trying to work within the system is not working for us. Right. So after that, the next major point is not Ferguson, but Trayvon Martin. Because we've been seeing it, we've been feeling it in these communities, but Trayvon Martin is such a, a flashpoint and we have a black president who says – having been frustrated because he couldn't talk about his friend getting locked up in Cambridge when, when Skip Gates got locked up. He, he messed that up. So he says, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon and he sticks to that. And that you then have this acquittal afterwards in the vein with everything else. That literally gives rise to the Black Lives Matter hashtag and movement. You'll note it's the same time that the National Justice Database that we host at the Center for Policing Equity, it is given rise to right after that, right? But folks are starting to get, we need to do something on these paramilitary pieces. And even though George Zimmerman is not in law enforcement, the cops didn't do a tox screen. They let him go home with his gun. They didn't do a thorough investigation. And it feels as if this child, he gets to die and there's not going to be a consequence.
0: There's nothing. Yeah.
1: And then not two years later, Michael Brown Jr. is shot and his friend claims his hands were up. He said, hands up, don't shoot. And Ferguson obviously sets the world on fire. We have two years where public safety and racism is the number one domestic issue in the country. Two full years. You can remember the names. Eric Garner is that period. Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice,
0: right. Right? Philando
1: Castile, Alton Sterling, Jamar Clark. All of them are within that period. And, and it just, it feels like an ever ending period. Never ending, right. just it's relentless. Right. And then fascism shows up 2016 and boom. It drops from number one to number seven. We're just trying to keep a democracy. And then this summer, and we're still in the moment of the summer where we will get less than what is boldly imagined, but where I think that we're going to make a kind of progress that we don't go back on. I think that policing should be less is winning consensus. And I think that we're a lot likely to go backwards on that, regardless of what happens in mainstream media and left and right.
0: My last question on every show, and this will be quick, man, if you want, is like, if you're as, suc- as successful as possible, everything breaks your way for the next 10 years. What's true about the world in 10 years?
1: But this consensus that has been building among particularly Black activists and communities that less police is part of the goal, that that is a national consensus, mm. that there are funding and uh, political structures to support folks who are in the midst of doing that work and that we have numerous examples of how powerfully good it can be for communities when badges and guns are not the first and only response to the worst things we do to the most vulnerable communities. That is that is it.
0: Thank you for listening to Radical Ones. If you're looking for more content like this, you can head over and be a supporter on our Patreon, patreon.com radicalones. You can also follow us on social at Radical Ones Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram. I hope this finds you happy, healthy, and safe. Take care.